Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's Midsummer. I'm your host, David Roscoff. And despite the fact that it's Midsummer, I am in New York City. Smarter than me in almost every respect, we have in beautiful California wine country, um, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you, Corey? I am exceedingly well, David, despite spraining my wrist, jumping a neighbor's fence. Were you running from something? Did you have a chicken under each arm? I mean, what was... (laughs) Vermont, that's yep. farming country. Yeah, David, well, in, in, in California, when you jump a fence and sprain your wrist, they charge you a corkage fee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, David, exactly. And that other voice you hear, of course, is um, David Sanger. And if you can't be smart enough to be in California wine country, you might as well be in Vermont, just like David. Um, how's it up in Vermont, David? It is, it is cool. It is rainy. You know, while we're going to sell Corey some of our rain clouds uh, at some point soon. That's, that's, our, that's our next profit-making operation. Uh, it is so rainy that, like, the ponds are brimming over to the point that we're beginning to worry about overflow. It's a little bit strange that this is happening on this side of the country while Corey's going through what they're going through on that side of the country. Well, strange weather is one of the things that's happening everywhere, and it does seem to have people's attention. But I was wondering if perhaps we could take a reflective moment here in the middle of the summer um, and talk a little bit about, you know, the, the some bigger issues and what's on our own minds about it all. Um, and I and I start with. This, I, you know, there, there is strange weather out there and we've had flooding in Germany and we've had fires across the United States. And at one point, you know, New York was, the sky was orange because there were fires in the Western U.S. Um, and I think that's one of the things that people are gradually becoming aware of. And the Biden administration has kind of re-engaged in issues of the climate crisis. Uh, and that's to their credit. But, and you know, they're active in a variety of places. Secretary Blinken is traveling around the world. They're engaged in China and Iran and, you know, dealing dealing with our, our allies in Europe and um, on issues ranging from, you know, Nord Stream, you know, the, the pipeline to immigration. But just talking to people recently, I have to say, I I could make an argument that the average American is less concerned about foreign policy related issues right now than at any point that I remember in the past 20 years. 
In other words, you know, the, you know, te- terrorism, you know, sort of brought this stuff home front and center before there was terrorism. You know, we had the Cold War for much of the time. Um, you know, we there are other kinds of issues that people have debated, but we're really sort of settling into one of those introverted American moments, not to say the government is doing it, not to say everybody is doing it, but it just feels that way to me. What do you think, Corey? Yeah, I think that's right, David. And I would attribute it to a few things. First, the urgency of our domestic political crisis, um, which begins to feel like the 1850s to me and the vituperativeness I saw a a crazy uh, Republican fundraising letter this morning that calls out by name a half dozen senior military officers demanding their resignation because they believe in critical race theory or, or stuff like that. And bringing the culture wars into the military and the military into the culture wars is actually a really dangerous uh, thing to do in a democracy. And it shocks me that my fellow Republicans, uh, even already elected officials like Senator Cotton and Representative Crenshaw are playing with fire this way. The depth of recklessness is actually uh, makes me nervous. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that regard. And so I think Americans are focused um, on what's happening in our own country. How do we um, mitigate these uh, dangerous and corrosive forces? And I think that leaves less interest in the rest of the world. The second thing I would say is that um, with regard to the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the and the Biden administration celebrating having zero combat troops in Iraq when we haven't had combat missions in Iraq in years, um, is that the last three presidents have not believed in the, uh, in the mission of uprooting terrorist organizations and stabilizing countries in transition. And that has an effect on American public attitudes. You know, we Americans are actually remarkably easy to persuade uh, to be engaged in the world, even using deadly force to shape the world. Uh, But the flip side of that coin is that um, when leaders don't bother, the public stops paying attention because thanks be to God, we have two of the best neighbors in the world and also oceans. Uh, bounding our country. And the third reason I would say is that um, we have overhyped the the danger, for example, the danger that terrorism uh, poses when our own defenses have improved remarkably in the space of the last 20 years. So I think there's also some fatigue on the part of the American public uh, about the nature of a lot of kinds of international engagement. And I guess the fourth, and I promise this is the last uh, reason is that 
President Trump and his supporters, among the fictions, dangerous fictions they have perpetrated on the American public is the belief that somehow the current international order is taking advantage of the United States and bad for us, rather than the best deal an American government has had in about 225 years, because the order that we created has more help upholding it by states than any American government's had, and it has a stronger United States. We're losing the ability to think of ourselves in weakness, right? And you, you see that in the discussion about slapping sanctions, secondary sanctions on any and every company and person in the world. We've forgotten that other people can do that too, not just us. So I think all of those things combine to make an American public that, that cares less about the rest of the world. You know, David, it must have been really hard to be in the same class with Corey because the teacher would answer the question and then Corey would give the exact right answer first, waving her hand eagerly, uh, saying things that the teacher should have thought of, but probably didn't. And then, you know, there was nothing left for anybody else in the class to say, but I'm going to go to you anyway and say, what do you, what do you say on top of that? Well, the first thing I say is um, Corey's exactly right. Uh, right. The second thing I'd say is you now understand why I love inviting Corey in as a guest lecturer in our class, because I don't have to say anything after all of that. Right? Uh, and the third thing is this. Um, this is the natural state of the American public, which is to say to ignore the rest of the world until some cataclysmic event draws us into it, at which point we overreact rather than having thought about what you might do to prevent those events to begin with, right? Uh, our, our friend and colleague, Graham Allison, has a great phrase, which is, Americans learn geography by fighting wars. The question is whether some of the transnational issues that we have now are so impinging on the lives of ordinary Americans that it might actually serve to awaken them, or at least awaken some generations of them, as I think we've seen happen, uh, without actually having to resort to an actual war. Climate's one good example of that. And we started off discussing all the strange events of the summer that have uh, contributed to that. I know there is a subset in America that wants to say that climate science is all made up and that you know none of this has to do with human activity, but that's a pretty small slice of the American public at this point, I think, that truly believes it. There's a slice that would like to believe it, and then I think there's everybody else. Um, cyber is the second. This has been the year of ransomware attacks from Russia, uh, cyber attacks from China, elsewhere. Those actually affect your day-to-day -day life here, and so they take on the same role the trade has always traditionally taken on, which is a way that Americans sort of understand uh, and think about uh, international relations with that at that time. Uh, Afghanistan, uh, I think Corey had uh, just right that, you know, we've had a succession of presidents now, three, as we discussed last week, who all came separately to the conclusion that we had to get out and Biden's just the first one to actually do it in completion. But when you get um, 
Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and uh, Joe Biden all coming out to the same conclusion, even if they came to the issue completely from completely different roads, um, that tells you something. You see it in the engagement in um, uh, TV ratings, newspaper readership, you know, now that Trump is gone, you know, and we're not reading the tweet saying, let's pull out of NATO tomorrow, or let's let the Japanese and the South Koreans have the atomic bomb. Uh, people have a little bit of a tune out. In the summer, they have a lot of tune out too. Have we seen this before? Yeah. Remember the summer of 2001? You know, we were worried about shark attacks before 9-11 happened, right? And then all the networks ran around and said, we'll never do this again. We want to go out and report out around the world and figure out why they hate us and so forth and so on. But cycles come and cycles go. And we are now exactly 20 years out. And um, Corey's just sending us a little message saying she's still worried about shark attacks. But that's because she lives in, in, in California, not in Vermont. <laughs> In Vermont, we send the bears out to deal with the sharks, Corey. So, um, I'm sorry to interrupt your serious and important conversation. <laughs> right. uh, so um, I think all these things are, are contributors. And the problem is it's a terrible way to go about making policy, but that's true about a lot of things in life. And so for um, those of us who uh, listen to Deep State Radio and, you know, read about foreign affairs or read what Corey's group is turning out at AEI and so forth, uh, or read the international pages of the New York Times and the Washington coverage of the New York Times, that's fine. But for most of the country, the default position is we live our life and we ignore a good deal of what's happening elsewhere until it impinges on us. China may be the issue that breaks us out of that because it is both because it is, it, it's the triple threat, right? It's the, it's the economic concern, it's the military concern, it's the values, human rights, democracy concern. Well, that's, you know, that's an interesting place to conclude because I have to say when I listen to both of you, not only are you both right, but it, exactly right, you're both exactly right. Um, including Corey, by the way, and her fear of shark attacks, which we can get to if you want to, Corey. But it seems kind of roughly appropriate. I don't think the Biden administration is making policy this way. They're engaged. They're doing their thing. I don't think the think tanks have given up on it and the specialists have given up on it. I just think, you know, I, I mean, your 1850s analogy is 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 a little disturbing to me, Corey, but uh, and and by the way, I don't think inappropriate at all. Uh, but but you know, the American people are kind of worried about the things that they ought to be worried about. And frankly, some of them, you know, investing in infrastructure, ensuring that we still have a democracy when we wake up in the morning, uh, dealing with you know gross inequality or dealing with um, climate and so so on and so forth, dealing with issues right at our own borders. Uh, seems kind of like what we should be thinking about right now. Um, do, 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 do you think that this moment uh, creates, as David is suggesting, some vulnerability that we, that, 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 that we ought to be more attuned to? Yeah, 
I think the China vulnerability, um, but I don't think we are inattentive to it. I think we're just not serious about it yet. For example, Congress was right to take up the issue of supply chain security and technological vulnerability to Chinese um, data theft, spying, and cyber. David's uh, great, the great expert on this. Um, but you know, the 2,400 page bill that they just produced is long on saying, wow, this is a problem and the administration should do something and very short on actual legislative um, undertakings to do something about it. Uh, so I think, I mean, my theory of American foreign involvement is that uh, we're very, very slow to pay attention for all the reasons the three of us, it sounds like, agree on. And the worst mistake an American adversary can make um, is to give us time to get our acts together. I think that's generally true of democracies and democratic cooperation. The political science on this is very strong that democracies are slow to act, but they act with greater sustainability than authoritarian states because you have had to win the domestic argument that it's worth doing at all. And I think that's the phase that we're in. I mean, Ray Dalio, the investor, has the most outrageous um, blog post up in the last day or so about how anybody who thinks China's a problem isn't really in the know in China. Um, and Patrick Chavanek has a fabulous uh, tweet thread on all the reasons this is idiocy and that Ray Dalio is aspiring to be the Henry Kissinger of Wall Street, namely somebody who says, but I have them on the telephone. They can't possibly be acting against what I think is the right thing to do. So I think Wall Street and Silicon Valley are slowly, slowly being dragged into the position that most American businesses that have done business in China across the last 15 years have already concluded, which is China is gonna use economic interdependence as a foreign policy weapon. Um, and they are not gonna respect the rule of law. Is that going to use it or has been using it? Yes, since at least 2010, when in a fishing dispute with Japan, China cut off Japanese access to rare earths minerals as a way to try and force capitulation. But the, but the Japanese experience and the Japanese did quickly capitulate. But there are other interesting things about that case, which you guys probably know as, as well or better than I, which is that Chinese companies circumvented their own government. So we do have the ability to reach into China to find common cause. The Japanese very quickly innovated to produce um, electronics that require less um, rare earths. So they began to innovate their way out of the problem. And they also invested in mines in Australia and created a secure supply chains initiative. So it is my fond and earnest hope that Ray Dalio bets all of his money on Chinese enterprises and gets a whole bunch of it confiscated by the Chinese government. 
because that would be capitalism at work. Which, by the way, Ray Dalio says in that blog post, that's what's going on there. It's all capitalism. We should just, you know, sort of relax with it. Um, yeah, ask uh, Didi about that. Yeah. You know, David, I, I think Corey's you know, onto something. I think our the motto of U.S. foreign policy that could keep the world at bay is to say, we may appear clueless, but in the end, we will overreact. You know, that should that should that should scare scare off our um, allies. Uh, having said that, you know, it's interesting. Um, this this administration, again, seems and 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 by the way, I'm you know, I'm not 100 percent on this, but that seems to be getting some of this right. They are concerned about things like supply chain in a way that we haven't been in a while. They are talking about, uh, you know, having sort of more of a strategic industrial policy, not just for the competitiveness and job side, but to avoid problems like we've talked about here. We have to see how that that gets followed um, through upon. Um, but having said that, do you agree that the, the reaction around China is is has got an element of complacency to it that were you know that the Ray Dalia view I I saw some comments from the one of these sort of U.S. China Foundation kind of things um, in in New York that were exactly the same as what Corey is talking about that were kind of like chill everything's going to be fine you know is that the sign of complacency or um, do, you, do you think at least the administration kind of has it roughly right? I think that the revolutionary part of the Biden administration, and one doesn't usually hear revolution and Joe Biden sort of uttered in the same sentences. We all went into this thinking because Republican opponents, uh, as Republican opponents kept saying it, that somehow or another, he was going to be soft on China. Right, and that he was going to go seek a reset and so forth and so on. That is the exact opposite of what has happened. Now, you'll remember that during the Trump administration, President Trump spent the first three years saying, well, we oppose them, but we can make a deal with them. I'm going to get the best deal out of them forever that, that anyone's ever gotten. And then after COVID happened, he became the great China hawk. But there was no strategy to the hawkishness. Um, I think what's really interesting about the Biden administration, and I would not yet say it is anywhere near successful, is just what you pointed out, that they are pressing to um, actually create an industrial policy that the Republicans aren't complaining about, which is pouring, if they get final passage of what the Senate finally uh, put through, over $50 billion into a semiconductor industry, into the semiconductor industry, because they fear China competition, pouring a lot of money, perhaps more money than strategy at this point, into artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, um, uh, quantum computing, all the areas that the Chinese are getting ready to go invest in. We're doing it a little bit late, but we are catching up. I like the uh, Rothkopf doctrine of... Um, how we'll be, uh, you know, tuned out until we overreact. It sounds to me like it is the corollary to the one that uh, Churchill is said to have said, but no one can ever figure out that he did, that the Americans will always do the right thing after they have exhausted all of the other possible options. Uh, and um, 
I'm wondering whether for China, the question is, can we do this in time? Now, the Chinese are not 10 feet tall. They're going to make mistakes. They've already made some, particularly in semiconductors, I would add. Um, so there should be plenty of opportunities, but it does require sustained policy. And what I think is interesting about, about President Biden is he has figured out that the only way he can get Americans behind this and Republicans behind this is to invoke the China competition. And that's why you hear him talking about autocracy versus democracy. That's why he's talking about whether or not the United States can prove that democracy can work because we know that the Chinese system looks very efficient from the outside. So, you know, the big bet in foreign affairs for the Biden administration is, can he make this autocracy versus democracy thing into a real actual doctrine? Well, the, the foreign policy community, you know, seems to be focused entirely most of the time on determining what the doctrine of the administrations are. And almost no administrations actually have any doctrines to speak of. Um, but, but you know, Corey- Which doesn't stop them from speaking about them. No, no, doctrines. no. And it's, it's, it's true. But I kept love, I loved hearing all the time about the, you know, the Trump doctrine, or the Obama <laughs> doctrine. And in both cases, there weren't any doctrines there. Uh, but but having said that, let's set that aside for a minute. I think one of the things the United States is doing, Corey, and it's very clever, and it's in fact so clever, I'm not even sure we know we're doing it, um, is that by pulling out from everywhere in the world, we're creating burdens for China that even they are not even aware that they're having to deal with. But there was a story last week um, about the Chinese hosting uh, the, the Taliban in, in Tianjin, um, and, uh, you know, of course, China has a 47 mile border with Afghanistan. Uh, uh, unrest in Afghanistan uh, is a problem. It's already produced some problems in Pakistan where they have a big investment. Unrest in, in you know, extremist groups in Pakistan and Afghanistan are a potential problem for the Chinese in their own Northwest region and in Central Asia more broadly. And so they're, they're sort of drawn into this a little bit. And you know, China has made hay for 20 years of the United States being over-involved and sp overspending in a bunch of places around the world while they were able to turn inward. Now the United States is turning inward. China is leaning forward and is undoubtedly going to, you know, inherit a bunch of headaches. I'm not saying we're going to repeat China's last intervention in Afghanistan, which took place, as Corey will quickly point out, in the 14th century with Genghis Khan. Um, uh, which cost them Genghis Khan's grandson, um, but did last for, you know, 120 or 130 years. Um, but I, but you know, I, I think a U.S. that pulls back adds pressure on the next big power. So I'm uncomfortable with that framing because it removes uh, both empathy and responsibility for the people most directly affected by America's choices, namely the people of Afghanistan, the people of Somalia. The, one of my favorite books, a terrible novel, but a brilliant book about American foreign policy is the late 1950s novel, The Ugly American. And in it, uh, one of the noble characters says to the, something like, to the extent that American foreign policy is humane, and cares about people's actual problems, 
it will be successful. And to the extent that it is grandiose and ideological, it will fail. And I worry that a framing that suggests that the that American inactivity creates vacuums that China gets sucked into does a terrible disservice to the people trying to make their neighborhoods safe, trying to get their children educated, trying to get mothers prenatal care. Um, and so I, I know you weren't headed that direction, David, but I sometimes worry that that's gonna be the result of the Biden administration's heavy-handed authoritarianism versus uh, democracy is that it's not true that extremism in defense of liberty is uh, justifiable. Actually, extremism is just extremism. And I worry that by fostering a notion that everything is a zero-sum game and we can impose costs on China by sucking them into Afghanistan, um, that, that that's unworthy of American involvement and it's unworthy of the risks and sacrifices and problems that the people of Afghanistan and other places are trying to solve. Yeah, but I have a slightly different worry than Corey's. Corey may be right on that one. My uh, by the way, I, I do want to point out that my column in the Daily Beast today is called, Is China Going to Be the Next Country Sucked Into? <laughs> 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 so, so you've you've zeroed in on it, although I come to, you know, I, I share your point of view on this. I, I think like most things in U.S. foreign policy, uh, what we are doing in this respect is is inadvertent um, because I think, you know, it's that it's it goes back to my prior the Rothkopf doctrine, which is, you know, uh, we're clueless until we overreact. And so a huge portion of what we do is result of the cluelessness. Anyway, David. It would be interesting to see if the Chinese fall for that. I mean, having seen just in the past 30 years, the Russians go in, get beaten up and retreat. The Americans go in, get beaten up and retreat. I would be interested in the Chinese theory on which it would work out any differently for them, uh, except that they're only the there to go grab the resources and leave. Uyghur in re-education camps yeah. going to have any way of understanding Afghan society. Yeah. So um, my worry is a little different than Corey's about autocracy versus democracy. I think on the one hand, Biden's identified the right issue that you know, the, Amer the strength of the United States is its constitution, the values of its people, its respect for human rights, its willingness to admit that we are frequently, that we often most of the time fail to live up to our own ideals and keep working at it, but it usually admit that along the way. What I worry about is that if the Biden administration really believes that it's going to treat China as a cooperative power wherever it can, a competitor you know, in most economic uh, territories and an adversary where it must, the language on both sides from President Biden and from President Xi is driving us directly toward a new kind of Cold War. And I know it drives people crazy to hear that. And I know that every American politician that I talk to sort of, you know, backs up at the concept that that's where we're headed. And I hope they're right. But 
all the evidence of the last six months of watching the behavior of the United States and watching the behavior of President Xi suggests that that's where we're going. And I'm not sure that either power has a plan to get off that train. I, you know, I think that's a really uh, important point to to consider, uh, Corey, because although both of you guys talk about, you know, China uh, accurately describing threats or or, or or places where they may play a role that's antithetical to U.S. interests. I don't think either of you are advocating uh, a, a new Cold War stance. And I and I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I, I think anybody who studied the situation for any period of time, you know, could list many, many differences between the U.S.-China situation and the situation that existed in the Cold War, notably that the United States and China are inextricably interdependent on each other. And so it's not the zero sum game uh, of the Cold War. Um, but it is kind of tough in US political discourse, particularly at the moment, to hit anything that even approaches nuance. Um, and so, you know, we, we, we you know, we, you know, it, the minute you say uh, China poses, you know, China is our rival you know, in most of the media discussion, it turns into China is our enemy. And, and those are two very different things, which maybe foreign policy wonks could understand, although some of them clearly do not. Um, uh, and, and President Trump was surrounded by some guys who were, as one person described to me in, in one of the one is I was doing you know some interviews for this book that I'm working on. Somebody who was very very prominent in the middle of the administration described Peter Navarro as a fucking sociopath, um, as you know one of Trump Trump's top China advisors. Um, it's 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 sort of hard to get to the public the general message that we need to keep an eye on China, we need to be aware of China. In some cases, we need to counterbalance China. In some cases, we may have to stand up to China, but they're not our enemy, not right now. Mm -hmm. Is that a problem you think we'll be able to tackle, Corey? Uh, yeah, as you guys know, <coughs> excuse me, I always bet long on the common sense of the American public because like Thomas Jefferson, I think it's the only safe repository of power. Um, although uh, I, I do think the Rothkopf doctrine of clueless until overreacting uh, is also true of the American public. Um, I, I worry about the way we are seeing attacks on Asian Americans as as one possible result of the lack of nuance in the conversation. But I do think broadly, the American public does actually understand that stuff. Like they think the semantics of it are boring, but they also, you know, don't wanna go to war with China um, unless there's really, really a good reason we have to, and they can be persuaded it's worth it and we know what we're doing. So I do think, you know, Ray Dalio is an outlier that if you look at the way investment firms uh, are starting to be a lot more worried about Chinese government behavior 
in the aftermath of the DDIPO, I think uh, self-interest is actually a really powerful thing and people are perfectly capable of it in many areas and especially in foreign policy. By the way, correct me if I've got it wrong, but just so that people are listening know, the DDIPO was an IPO of a kind of, I think it was an Uber-like service in China. Um, and the Wall Street kind of got all excited about it and put a lot of money into it. And the day after they did it, the Chinese government, you know, dropped an anvil on Didi and, you know, you know, sort of eliminated a lot of its value overnight, thus pulling the rug out from Wall Street. So that, that's roughly what you're talking about there, right? Absolutely. But we, have, but we have to talk about why, because, you know, before we saw both the United States and China talk about keeping data about its citizens located in a country of origin. So the Chinese have required that Google store all of its data about Chinese in servers in China so that they could get them, they could use them for their own political purposes or their own uh, hunting down dissidents. But now what, what are we seeing? In a world in which we're told that the two economies, the two world's largest and second largest economy are so interdependent, we are seeing the United States pull back on selling high-tech equipment, including semiconductor equipment to the Chinese. We're seeing the Chinese government refuse to allow some of their companies to be listed on US exchanges where suddenly US authorities would have a moment to go dig into the finances or data policies or whatever of those companies. So, you know, I, I hear all the arguments about interdependence, but we are seeing every week small evidence toward dis disengagement uh, of those economies. I think that's well, right. And on both, <clears throat> driven on both sides. Yes. Yeah, well, although, you know, you might, again, in a sort of nuanced way, look at it as ways of creating firewalls and safety nets and, 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 and pulling back in some ways, but trade is strong, investment is strong. Uh, the dependence of both countries on the global economy, which is driven in large part by decisions of either country is strong. Um, uh, you know, the inability to deal with issues uh, from climate to cybersecurity to uh, regional security issues without the joint involvement of both countries is a fact. And so we, we may be disengaging a little bit, but it's not like anything that is bad that happens to the Soviet Union is good for the United States. You know, it's not, it's not like we were back in that day. And so there will be a new flavor to this rivalry, um, whatever we may end up calling it. You know, I, I, I'm very grateful, and we've made a sort of deliberate decision here in the middle of the summer to have sort of smaller, more thoughtful conversations here, um, which don't sort of produce the hair on fire discussions of, 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 of some of the Trump years, but I think are really important and why I think, you know, we've been doing this for the past number of years, many, many years. Um, and, uh, and I'm grateful that you guys could take the time, uh, as you do each week and provide such thoughtful analysis, because I think people need to think about these things. Uh, and we'll continue this discussion in our ensuing discussions throughout the summer. And even, you know, when we get back to school in the fall, 
Um, and uh, so I welcome everybody to join us again for those discussions um, and all, everything else we're doing. And if you want to find out more about what we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com. Uh, click on membership if you like, help become um, a member and uh, help sustain having conversations about things you, you may not see discussed elsewhere or in, in the kind of depth you want, as you did uh, here today from uh, uh, the inimitable Corey and the inimitable David. And thank you guys for, for offering that up and we'll see you again. Well, thanks, David. I'll be I'll be thinking about cluelessness leading to overreaction for the rest of the month. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's not only is this, you know, I think a enduring truth of American foreign policy, but it's sort of been the story of my life as well. So, glad <laughs> um, <laughs> you said that, so we didn't have to. <laughs> yeah, no, believe me, that's why I jumped. That's why I jumped in there before you got there. Um, anyway, thanks, David. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, things are a little, you know, uncomfortable out there with COVID. So everybody, be careful. Yeah, uh, be stay careful. healthy. We need all of you deep state nerds. So please be safe and be vaccinated. Yeah, and wear a mask when you're around people. You may not be deep state nerds and, you know, maybe risky for that reason. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Uh,